Welcome to Harvest. I'm glad you're here today. My name is Pastor Micah, and uh, super pumped to be worshiping with you guys this morning. Uh, Want to say uh, a warm welcome. We have some friends here from Harvest Chicago. Can we give them a warm welcome this morning? Um, they're down here with us in St. Louis, slumming it this weekend. So, um, no, we're glad that they're here and just hanging out. And so, super uh, great to get together with God's family, right? No matter where they're from. So uh, today we're going to continue on in the book of Jonah. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and grab that. Um, I'm really, really excited about this series. I'm glad it's having an impact. Uh, it's, last week we started off this series, first sermon, and the major takeaway evidently was fanny packs. Um, so that's always good to know that your sermon's really changing people's hearts and stuff. Um, but, um, but this whole series, we're calling it God's Infuriating Grace. And sometimes I think we, we start to, when we think about God's grace, when we think about grace in our lives, it brings those warm, nice, fuzzy feelings of, yeah, God's grace, oh, that's awesome, and, and you know, he loves us so much, and, and all that's true. But there are times where we encounter God's grace in various ways, or we step away from or run from God's grace because it's not doing what we want to do. It's not going the way we want to go. It's not always following our agenda, and sometimes that can put us at odds with God's grace, and we need to see that in ourselves. We need to correct that, and so we're going to see that in the life of Jonah today. So Jonah chapter 1 is where we're headed. If you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to join us there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one somewhere there on the floor around you. I think most of you do because you all were lighting it up when we were sharing Scripture earlier. So pretty sure you all found a Bible already, but um, as I was getting ready for this sermon, um, I, was, I was thinking about, you know, the, the, the name of the sermon is called Resisting God's Grace, and I was thinking about, you know, when do we resist uh, something in our life? And uh, we have three girls, many of you know that, and um, you know, all kids are different, right? Like you, you got to deal with all of them. They all need different parenting, and they all have different personalities. But our oldest daughter, Eliana, has always been pretty strong-headed, and she knows what she wants, and she knows how she wants it, and when she wants it, and, and so she always tends to, to push quite a bit. And I remember when we went to this little stage when she was like between one and two, um, where she was really trying to exert her will over mommy and daddy's will. And it was one of these things, like, we would tell her, you know, like, don't touch that. And she'd be like, and just give you that look, like, what you going to do about it, right? And, and so we know we had to deal with this, because if you don't deal with it then, it just gets worse as time goes on and as they get older, and then they don't know how to respect authority. And sorry, right, we got to deal with this. So we were, we were trying to, to confront this in her, and nothing was working, man. Like, we would we would spank, we would do timeouts, we would take things away, and she didn't care. All she cared about was winning, right? Like, I'm going to win this war, and so we were just going head-to-head. Head. So finally, we, we came up with this plan that we had to make her submit uh, to the authority in her life, and so when she would act out, when she would disobey, we would go with what we call the bear hug method. We would literally take her and wrap her up like this, her arms, her legs, everything, where she could not move at all. And she would scream and thrash and kick, and, and we would hold her just like that until she finally just relaxed and submitted so that she knew she wasn't going to win. Sometimes it would take an hour, if you can imagine, all right? Not for long. Eventually, she learned she wasn't going to win, and she would give in, and she learned how to, to respect that authority. And the reason we did that was not to be mean because we loved her enough not to let her continue walking in rebellion in her life. That's God's grace. When God looks at us and he sees us walking in rebellion, when he sees us sinning, when he sees us walking away from what he has for us, 
He is willing to come and do what is hard and do what is sometimes painful until we submit because he loves us enough not to let us carry on in that rebellion. So today when we're looking at resisting God's grace, here's what I want you to see, that resisting God's grace is painful because he won't leave me sinful. Right? Resisting God's grace becomes a, an exercise in pain for us because he will not leave us in our sin. When I say us, I'm talking about his children, right? If you've given your life to Christ, if you're following after Jesus, he will not let you stay in that place of rebellion. He's going to bring you in, and, and even if it hurts for a while, he's going to get you back on that right track. That's God's grace. And when we kick against it, when we resist it, it's just hurtful and harmful to us. And we're going to see that here with Jonah and uh, in his life. So look at chapter 1, verse 7. We'll start there today. It says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So here's the first thing this morning. When I resist God's grace, it forces God to out my sin. When I resist God's grace, it forces him to out my sin to me and sometimes to everyone around me. If you remember, at the end of last week, we came to this point where, you know, the, the ship's all in the storm, and it's about to go crazy, and the captain comes down, and he finds Jonah sleeping in the bottom of the boat. He's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, get up. <laughs> like, we're all about to die here. And so at this point, he's like, they, he, you know, they've made it their way back up to the top, and all the sailors are there, and they're like, all right, whose fault is this? Right? They said, whose account is this on? In other words, it's interesting to me that they're blaming this storm, this storm of all storms, on a human's actions. That's foreign to us as 21st century Westerners. Uh, we tend to think about natural disasters as just that. Natural disasters and just, uh, uh, you know, the result of, of nature or, you know, unintended consequences of whatever. And sometimes it is. But we also need to remember that our God is sovereign over all things, and he controls all things, and he will use whatever he chooses to accomplish his will. And sometimes he chooses to use the very things that he created, like a storm, which is what's happening here. That sovereignty of God message is a major theme, not just in the book of Jonah, but throughout the entire Bible, constantly reminding us who's in control, right? It's not us, right? We're, we have to surrender to him. So they said, whose account is this on? But notice it says, on whose account has this evil come upon us? I love this, man. This, the author of the book of Jonah is so great. If you remember in the last part, the first part of chapter 1, Jonah refused to go to Nineveh and tell them what God's message was because he said they were evil, right? The same word that shows up in the first part that is assigning this evil to Nineveh is the same word the author is using now, but he's no longer assigning the evil to Nineveh. Who's he assigning it to? Jonah. Oh, how the tables have turned, right? This is a super important reminder that in the eyes of our God, all sin is equally evil. See, we, we, we tend to play this game, right, where we rank sins, right? Like, you know, some sins are less and some sins are more. And, and for sure, some sins do bring greater earthly consequences. That's true. Absolutely true, right? But ultimately, sin is sin. And when it comes to God, it is all equally offensive and all equally evil before him. 
I've used this analogy before as I've taught you this in, in, this, in the past, but it just works, so I'm going to give it to you again. The reason that it's all equal is because of this. Sons, I wrote this down exactly here. The severity of sin is based not on the sin, but on who the sin is against. The severity of sin is not based on what the sin is, it's based on who the sin is against. And so here's the example. If I was to go tonight, if you were to go tonight, and say you, you made a prank phone call to your brother or your sister or whatever, and you're like, hey, I'm coming to your house tonight, and I'm taking you out, man. Like, this is it for you. You're done, right? Like, he might not like you very much the next day, but nothing really bad's going to happen, right? Like, there's no really major consequences for that. It's not that big of a deal. Make that exact same threatening phone call to the White House, and what's going to happen? Bad stuff, right? Like, FBI on your door, you're in cuffs, in jail. Like, why? It's the exact same offense, but it's against someone different. Are you tracking with me? Who the sin is against is what controls the severity in all of our sin. Even when I sin against you, even when I sin against me, even when I sin against a stranger, all that is true. But all of my sin, no matter who it's against here on earth, is all against a holy God. That's what David said, right? Against you alone have I sinned. So because all of our sin is against God, all of our sin is equally offensive and evil. And so that's the case here for Jonah, just like it was for Nineveh. And then they come to this part where it says, all right, let's, let's cast lots to figure out who this is. Who's, who's the culprit here? Now, let's just talk about casting lots for a second, because that's not something we do a lot today. I don't know if you were casting lots last night while you were hanging out with your friends or family. But in, in the Old Testament, this was actually a pretty common thing. It actually shows up over 70 times in the Old Testament. And it was a thing that they used to discern the will of God. When they had a question, when they, wasn't, they weren't sure which way to go, they would use this casting lots thing to discern the will of God. A couple of examples for you. Um, when they were dividing the promised land up amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, they cast lots to do that. When they were choosing their first king, King Saul, it was a casting of lots that chose the first king of Israel. When they were assigning who would be in certain officials and, and roles in the temple, they casted lots to see who would be in what spots. And several times throughout the Old Testament, they would cast lots to determine who in the camp or who in the group was in sin. We see this with Achan. Remember after Jericho and he stole the stuff he wasn't supposed to take and they cast lots and they get all the way down to him and his family, right? We see it with Jonathan when he disobeyed Saul's orders in the Israelite army and they casted lots to figure out who was the culprit. And then here again with Jonah. Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord, okay? So there's something to this casting lot things that God ordained this, like God used this to speak to his people in the Old Testament, and we don't even know exactly how they did it. We don't know, you know, exactly how they casted lots or what they used for the lots, per se. We don't have the exact means and stuff, but we can discern that it would be similar today to, like, flipping a coin or drawing straws or rolling a dice, something of chance that was going to determine what the outcome was. And so I think the logical question is, if this is God's word and this is the way he spoke to his people, why don't we cast lots today? Like, why don't we do this when a hard decision comes up? That would be a lot easier, right? Like, God, should I buy this house or this house? Should I, you know, you know should I go over here and serve here or serve there? Like, that would be a lot easier if I just rolled a dice and God would just tell me. But we don't do that today. Why do we not do that? Well, in the New Testament, we only see two examples of casting lots. The first one, 
are the Roman guards and soldiers that are casting lots, gambling for Jesus' clothing after they put him on the cross. That's in a couple different Gospels. Not a shining example of casting lots, right? Can we agree on that? The other one we see, interestingly enough, is right after Jesus' resurrection, they're trying to decide who is going to take Judas' spot among the 12 apostles, right? Judas betrayed and Jesus, right, and then hung himself, and he's out of the picture. They need a 12th guy, and they've got it down to two, but they can't decide between the two, and so they cast lots to figure out who of the two should be the guy. But here's what's interesting. If you look that up, it's in Acts chapter 1. If you look it up, it'll have that title. And if you look directly across, the, at least across the page of my Bible, I guess it depends on how your Bible's set up, but in that very same chapter, the next thing we see is the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's Pentecost. See, they casted lots prior to having the Word of God to turn to or the Spirit of God to turn to. Once we received the Word of God through the writing of the apostles, and once we had the Spirit of God living in us, we no longer need to cast lots. We can talk to God and refer to his Word, and he has already told us what the answer is. In fact, here's what it says about discerning God's will in the, in the New Testament. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which is through God's word, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's like, listen, you want to know the will of God? Transform your mind with God's word and then think on those things and it will reveal itself to you. That's what Paul says. He also says in Ephesians 5, 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Some of your translations would even say, seek to understand what the will of the Lord is. He's saying, listen, seek it out. Go to God's word. Go in prayer to God's spirit and let him speak to you. We don't have to roll a dice anymore. We have a better in with the Lord, right? Let's just be honest. It would be a lot easier if I could just roll a dice sometimes, but that's not what God's word says. It says, come, read, study, learn, pray, seek my face, and I will tell you the will of the Lord. The Old Testament saints, they didn't have any of that. They didn't have God's written word yet. They didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling with them for sure. So this is what they did. And it's kind of funny to me when I'll hear other Christians, other churches talk about casting lots for this, that, or the other, like it's like this super spiritual thing. But I'm like, not only does the word of God not teach that, but we don't use that in any other realm of life, right? You, you don't do this anywhere else in your life. Why would you do it with spiritual things? It's not like, okay, God, who am I going to marry? All right, I got it down to these three right here. Let me see here. I'm going to roll a dice. One, two, or three. Okay, you, you won the dice roll. You want to marry me? Wouldn't that be romantic, right? Like the lot picked you. Let's go. We don't do that. It's, it's, it's crazy, right? And so for us to do it in the church, it's not a super spiritual thing. In fact, it's kind of silly. And I would even challenge it's kind of slothful to try to go to something like this when the word of God says, no, no, seek me out through my word and through my spirit and I will tell you. So we don't do the casting lots of things anymore, but they did. And it revealed that it was Jonah. Look at verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? And what is your country and of what people are you? Like, can, you can you feel their desperation? Right? Like, tell us, like, what is going on? 
And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So the lot fell on Jonah, which means God outed Jonah to all these guys. Like he's the one, he's the one. And so they, they go into this onslaught of questions, just trying to discern in the midst of the storm, like what do we do to fix this thing? They are desperate to get this resolved. And he says to them, he responds, right? And he didn't answer all their questions. He just answers like the, the real question they're asking, right? He says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which to them would have blown their minds because they thought of gods as regional, right? He said, no, no, my God's the God of heaven. He's the God over all gods. Like he is the top one of, of anyone you can think of. He is the God of all gods. He is, he, he made the sea and the dry land, right? Like this is his doing. <laughs> he controls all of it. And this is definitely him. He said, he's the one I fear. And fear here really kind of means worship, which again, is kind of ironic. You're like really, Jonah, worship? I think that's the last thing you're doing right now, right? You're running from God. You're definitely not worshiping him. But nonetheless, he answers their question about who his God is, and he tells them at some point in this conversation that he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And so now that God has outed him, he finally confesses his sin to these men, right? But only after God had already exposed it. See, here's the reality, friends. We cannot hide from God, and we cannot hide our sin. God doesn't play that game. It will be brought to light. If you're one of his children, he will not let you stay in darkness. Luke 12, 2 through 3 says this, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. God will not leave it in the darkness. And it says the men were exceedingly afraid. Who are they afraid of? They're afraid of God. They've seen his hand. They've seen his power. And they don't want anything to do with that. And they're like, what have you done? What have you done to us, Jonah? I think, you know, growing up, we've all lied to our parents at different times. And uh, I know, you know, we struggle that with our girls sometimes. They're trying to hide something they did, one of their misdeeds. And um, so one of the most famous stories in our family of this type of thing, um, of course, stars yours truly. And, um, and so and in, our, in our family, it's, it's affectionately called the, um, this is like super private Mathis family stuff I'm about to share with you right now, just so you know that. Like you're, you're on the inner circle, okay? It's called the alien dog story. All right, so, so here's, here's the story. So one, it, was one, it was one summer day, I was at home, I was like late elementary, early middle school, and I was staying home, and I was watching my two younger sisters kind of babysitting them, and you know, it's a normal summer day, you're a kid, you're just bored. And so I found these old firecrackers that we had, like left over from 4th of July or New Year's or something, I don't know. And so I got this bright idea that I was gonna sell off these firecrackers, um, kind of like the Home Alone scene, you remember that one, right? Like, anybody else see that? Like, when he's trying to, like, scare the burglars off, and he throws them in the pot, and they all, like, do their thing? So I'm going to do this. So, so I get a pan, and I put it up on the stove. But my pan was, like, that tall, not, like, that tall, like theirs was. And so I put it on the stove, and I light the firecrackers, and I throw them in there. And 
the movies lie. Do you know that? Like, they don't show you all the smoke and all of the, the papers flying everywhere. And like, it just made a huge mess in my mother's kitchen. And so I'm, I'm quickly like, trying to figure out how to fix this. And so I open up all the windows and doors. And I'm like trying to fan all the smoke out. And I'm going to get the vacuum. And I'm vacuuming up all the little pieces of paper and stuff. And of course, this day of all days, my stepdad comes home early from work. So he walks in the front door, smoke everywhere still, and paper, and I'm vacuuming, and, and he's like, what, what is going on? Why are you vacuuming? And I'm like, oh, I'm cleaning up, you know, my sister's mess from lunch. And he's like, yeah, like I never did that, never vacuumed if I didn't have to. He's like, okay, he's like, what's with all the smoke? I'm like, oh yeah, I, um, I burnt a grilled cheese on the stove, you know, at lunch. And he's like, okay. So he kind of walks over to the fridge and he opens it up and he's like, we don't have any cheese or butter. Like, how are you making a grilled cheese? And I'm like, ah, I borrowed it from the neighbors, right? Which, which they weren't even home, by the way, but nonetheless, I'm like, I borrowed it from the neighbors. And uh, he was like, okay. He's like, so where's the, where's the burnt sandwich? He's like, it's not here in the trash. I'm like, oh, well, I didn't want to like, smoke up the rest of the house. So I threw it out in the backyard, of course. And he's like, and at this point, he's getting pretty irritated, understandable. And um, he's like, all right, go find the sandwich. And I said, okay. So I walk out, and I am walking around the backyard pretending to look for this sandwich, <laughs> trying to formulate my next move, right? Like trying to, how do I keep this thing, what I thought was on the rails, which obviously it was already off the rails. But so I'm out there for hours walking around the backyard. Finally, Steve comes out, and he's like, where's the sandwich? I'm like, I don't know. I, I, guess, I guess some dogs came and ate it. Hence the alien dogs, okay? Um, so, so my mom comes home, and she, so they're inside. I'm still outside looking around for the stupid sandwich, and, and, they're, and they're talking about the whole thing, and, and, and meanwhile, they have found all the extra firecracker wrappings that I did not get vacuumed up before they got there, and, um, and so anyways, they pull me back in, and, and needless to say, I was grounded for a long, long time, okay? Now, if I would have done that and confessed as soon as he came in what had happened, I probably would have got a little bit of a reprimand, but nothing that give a deal. The problem came when I buried in, when I dug in my heels, and I refused to repent, I refused to confess, I continued to keep walking in that rebellion. Are you tracking? I thought I could hide my sin and I could not. And that's a kind of a funny example from childhood, but I think we've all had those instances in our lives where the sin was a lot bigger and the stakes were a lot bigger and we were trying desperately to keep that hidden. But eventually, the Lord will bring it to the light. He will not leave us in our rebellion. And the good thing is this, it's better if it comes out through confession rather than him having to out us for it. Right? It's going to come out either way. Either we confess it, or it'll come out through some critical situation that he brings it to a head. But it's better if we confess it first, rather than him having to pull it out of us. But the reality is this. God's grace will not allow me to live in the darkness of my sin. God's grace in my life as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, his grace will not allow me 
to continue to walk, to live in the darkness of my sin. He will draw it out to the light. So when I resist God's grace, it forces him to out my sin. Here's the second thing this morning. It forces God to double down on my sin. If I continue to walk in rebellion, if I continue to resist his grace, it forces God to double down on my sin. Look at verse 11 as we continue on with Jonah's story here. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So they're like, what should we do? Like, Jonah, it's your God. It's your problem. Like, tell us how to fix this, right? If anybody knows, it should be you. And what's ironic to me here is that these men are actually now more eager to obey and submit to Jonah's God than Jonah is, right? Like Jonah's still digging in his heels and they're like, we'll do whatever it takes. Like, just tell us what we got to do. And we're on that because the sea grew worse and worse. Verse 12, he said to them, pick up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. <laughs> he said, this is Jonah talking now. So this is Jonah's chance, right? This is fine. This is like Jonah's chance. God's giving him a one more chance to make it right, to confess, to repent, to just to, to like turn it back. And like, here's his chance to do <clears throat> what he needs to do. But he doesn't do that. He's like, I know, I, know, I know it's me. Just pick me up and hurl me into the sea, right? Just throw me overboard. Jonah would rather, rather than confess, rather than repent, like truly confess and repent before the Lord, he'd rather just deal with the consequences, even if that means death. That's how dug in he is right now in his rebellion. He's not even man enough to jump over himself. He's like, you guys got to throw me, right? Like, I'm putting it on you. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Nevertheless, the men rode harder. So they're like, this dude's crazy, right? <laughs> like, like, we can't be throwing somebody overboard. Like, they're going to die, and then, like, his God's going to be mad at us, and that's going to make it even worse for us. Like, we can't be killing somebody. And so <clears throat> they take drastic measures here to try to correct this. Like, if we can just row back to the shore, right? Which, if you know anything about sailing, when there's a really bad storm, what's the number one thing you don't do? Head for land. <laughs> because then you get there, and the, the waves just pound the boat against the rocks, and you go down. You don't go back towards the shore, but they're desperate here to find some way to make this thing right. We'll just get back to the shore, we'll throw Jonah on the land, and then he can go follow his God, and God can deal with him, and we'll be safe. Like, if we can just get Jonah back to where this all started, then he can make it right with God, and we'll go on. Problem is, sin never works that way. Once we're in it, it can't just be forgotten. It can't just be brushed aside or undone with some magical thing. It's the only way we deal with sin is directly through confession and repentance. 
We can't sidestep it. We can't try to avoid it. We can't try to reverse it. We've got to deal with it. When you get into sin, you have two choices. There is no going back. There's just two choices forward. Repentance or wrath. Repentance or wrath. Jonah's still choosing wrath. says so the, the sea grew more and more crazy and God's just not going to let this go, right? He's not just going to be like, all right, fine, I give up. Jonah, you win. It's not going to happen. So the sea gets worse. He doubles down again because God will not relent until I repent. You need that in your heart, man. When sin comes, and it will come, it comes for all of us, None of us are perfect this side of eternity, right? We all have stuff that we're going to struggle with, all, all stuff that we're going to, where sins are going to take us down at times. And we need to have this ringing in our ears. God will not relent until we repent. And he's not giving up on Jonah here. <clears throat> I don't know what your, you know, your habits are in terms of TV viewing, um, but every once in a while, you know, you'll get really bored on a Saturday or something, or maybe you're up late one night, <clears throat> and you get on that, that, that little roll of infomercials, you know what I'm talking about? Where, like, they can literally solve every single major problem in your life with some invention that will only cost you, like, three installments of 1995, right? And there's all this stuff. Like, they can cure your, like, out-of-control acne, and they can, you know, like, you know, give you, like, superhero abs in 10 minutes a day, or... You know, make sure you're never cold again on the couch when you're watching TV, arms included, right? So, like, whatever your deal is, like, they can solve all these problems for you. And, and there was this one I saw the other day that I just thought was, like, super, super impressive. And so um, I, I, I was going to tell you about it, but I thought, you know, let's just, let's just see it, right? So let's just go ahead and, let's go ahead and roll that right now. Check this out. Hi, Phil Swift here for Flex Tape. The super strong waterproof tape that can instantly patch, bond, seal, and repair. Flex tape is no ordinary tape. Its triple thick adhesive virtually welds itself to the surface, instantly stopping the toughest leaks. Leaky pipes can cause major damage, but Flex tape grips on tight and bonds instantly. Plus, Flex tape's powerful adhesive is so strong. It even works underwater. Now you can repair leaks in pools and spas without draining them. Flex tape is perfect for marine, campers, and RVs. Flex tape is super strong. And once it's on, it holds on tight. And for emergency auto repair, Flex tape keeps its grip, even in the toughest conditions. Wait, it gets better. Big storms can cause big damage, but flex tape comes super wide, so you can easily patch large holes. To show you the power of flex tape, I saw this boat in half and repaired it with only flex tape. Not only does Flex Tape's powerful adhesive hold the boat together, but it creates a super strong watertight seal. So the inside is completely dry. Yeah, doggy! Just cut, peel, 
stick and seal. All right, Imagine that's enough. That's enough. You can do. Ye doggy is right. Are you with me? Like, that's some serious tape. Now here's the deal. <clears throat> Did they fix anything in that video? No. Right? All the holes are still there. All the cracks are still there. All the problems are still there. They just covered them up. Most of the time, that's how we try to deal with our sin. If I can just cover it up, if I can just do something to glaze it over and make it look nice and make it look pretty again and stop the leak and stop the problem, then I can walk away from this and nobody has to know and we don't have to do anything further. Like, that'll be good enough. But that doesn't fix anything. It doesn't fix the sin. It's not true repentance. The reality is it's always there. I know it's wrong, and I'm sorry, I, I won't do it again. Can't we just move on? Right? I, I, I know, Mom, I lied to you again, but, you know, I'm your son, and, and you can trust me, and we can just, we can just keep going. Like, this, isn't, this doesn't have to do anything to our relationship. I know I, I know I stole that money from that one customer, and I didn't, I didn't charge them correctly, but they don't even know, and I won't ever do it again, and I don't really have to, I don't really have to pay them back the money. I'll just... I'll just stop doing that. I know we shouldn't have been engaging in that type of um, physical relationship before we were married, but we'll just get married now and that'll fix it, right? And we can just move forward. We don't have to repent of that. We can just keep going. If we just put the ring on it, then we're good. God doesn't work that way. There has to be repentance. He won't settle for anything less. And so the real question is this, what does repentance look like? It's a hard question. <clears throat> After times I'll be working with people as a pastor and I'll have somebody ask me, do you really think that they're repentant? And my answer usually is, maybe. I think so. I hope so. Because it's really hard to tell if there's true repentance. Sometimes even in our, in our own hearts, it's hard to tell. I think I repented of that, and then something comes up, oh, maybe I didn't. So I'm gonna give you real quick here seven signs of true repentance. Seven signs of true repentance. Maybe you can apply this to something in your life that has happened recently or in the last year, where you're like, did I really truly get to a place of repentance with that sin in my life? Number one is this, call sin, sin. Don't spin it, don't excuse it, don't say, yeah, but, that extenuating circumstances, blah, 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 no, no, no. Just call it what it is. Yes, that was sin. Number two, confess sin quickly. Preferably before you get caught. But even if you get caught, as soon as you're caught, confess quickly and fully. Immediately lay it all out. Don't give it in pieces. Don't, yeah, that happened. And then two weeks later, oh, yeah, this happened. And then three weeks, oh, yeah, that happened. And no, no. If it comes out, take it all out. Confess sin quickly. Number three, correct the wrong. Some part of repentance isn't just saying 
I'm sorry, it's going and making it right. Make the amends as best you can. Pay it back, make it right, fix whatever it is that you did to that person. You can't always do that, but when you can, do it. Correct the wrong. Number four, consequences accepted. One of the greatest signs of repentance is that I am willing to accept the consequences of my sin. I don't try to dodge it. I don't try to refuse it. I don't try to, I don't bristle under the consequences. I don't resent the consequences or the person giving them to me. I just say, yeah, that's right. I reap what I sow. Consequences accepted. Number five, this is important too, guys. Calmly await forgiveness. Sometimes when you sin against someone, it's going to take them a little time before they're ready to forgive you. It doesn't always happen instantaneously. And on our side, if we're the ones who has committed the sin, we need to wait patiently for their forgiveness. Not be hounding them, not be pressuring them into, well, have you forgiven me yet? Have you, you know, why can't you get over this? And, and why can't we just move on? And I thought you loved me, or I thought you were my friend, or I, we're both Christians. Like, no, no. They were wronged. They were sinned against. Do they need to forgive? Yes. Do they need time to do that? Yes. Calmly await forgiveness. Number six, combat any recurrence. If you're truly repentant, you will do whatever it takes to keep that sin from happening in your life again. I'm not saying you'll always be successful. Sometimes we'll still mess up again. Sometimes it will still come back. But you will go hard after it to stop. You'll get the help you need. You'll bring somebody alongside you, somebody from your small group. Get a counselor. Get a pastor. Make a plan. Do something to keep yourself away from that temptation and away from that sin a second time. And then number seven, maybe the most important on the backside of repentance, comfort in God's grace. When we sin, we have to do what we need to do to correct it and get it right and get confessed and get repentant. But we also need to remember, this is why God's grace is there. Right? That there is forgiveness and there is love and there is grace on the other side of sin. And you don't have to carry that weight forever like you are forever this outcast to God. You're not. There is grace and there's forgiveness for that sin, but it only comes on the back side of repentance. Do the first six, and number seven will come, and you'll be released from that sin. This is what true repentance looks like. So I challenge you this week, do a little self-assessment. Think about the last major battle that you had with sin in your life. Did I do these seven things? Did I truly get to a place of repentance before the Lord? Because God's grace will not allow me to move forward until I repent. I will be stuck right there in that spot with God and with my spiritual life until I bow my knee and repent before the Lord. You will get spiritually stuck because he will not allow you to move forward until repentance is true and full. So when I resist God's grace, he outs my sin, he doubles down on my sin, and then the last thing today 
it forces others to deal with my sin. A lot of times when I dig in my heels of rebellion and I refuse to repent, it actually forces others around me to have to deal with the sin in my life. Look at verse 14. The sailors here, it says, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So Jonah won't repent. He won't jump overboard. So he's like, y'all are going to have to throw me, right? And these guys are conflicted about it. They're calling out to God, not to their gods. Remember earlier in chapter 1, they, they prayed to their gods. Now they're praying to Jonah's God. And they're like, oh, dear God, please do not let us perish and do not lay on us innocent blood. They're basically repenting before they think they might sin, right? Like, like we don't know if we're supposed to throw this guy overboard or not. And if we're going to kill him and that's a sin, please forgive us. But we don't know what else to do. And they're having to deal with the weight of this because Jonah won't. But they say, for, O Lord, you have done as it pleased you. They understand something that Jonah is missing. That God is in control. And the only play we have is to surrender to his will. And they're ready to do that even if Joan is not. What a rebuke. What a rebuke to Jonah, the prophet of God. That these men who have just had their first encounter with the God of the universe are eager and, and willing and able to bow their knees and repent and confess, and pray, and submit. <clears throat> do you guys remember those... Um, those posters that were like really popular like in the eight, like late 90s, early 2000s, they were those like motivational posters. They'd have like some picture with the word and then like the, you know, the statement, you know what I'm talking about? They're like in all the offices and stuff, they have like this, this eagle that's like flying through the air and it says, you know, like, you know, like uh, uh, perseverance or, or dream big. And it's like, you know, your, your altitude is only determined by your attitude, not your aptitude. And I like all this like really cool stuff, right? Like I don't, so around that time, some friends of mine and I, we, we found this other set of posters called demotivational posters. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen any of these, but they're, they're, they're fairly funny. Um, here's one of them that I wanted to share with you that applies to here. So you got like a sinking ship here, right? You see the sinking ship on the picture? And it says, um, it says, mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others, right? So that's Jonah, right? Like right now, that is Jonah. He is so dug in, man, like he is not going to let this thing go. And his life, his sin, is serving as a warning sign to these other sailors, to these men who didn't even know who God was. You ever feel that way? Like your stuff is just like this big neon sign, like, don't do it this way, right? Like, don't do it like me. Do not try this at home, right? Like this is... Like you, your life is just like this big flashing sign. Thankfully, thankfully our God is bigger than that. And he's bigger than you and he's bigger than me and he's bigger than our mistakes. And he can use even our big mess ups for his glory. 
to do something good, even if it's in the lives of others instead of us. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Um, so they finally do it. They hurl him into the sea, right? So they, they obeyed the Lord, even though Jonah refused to. And it says, the sea ceased its raging. And in the Hebrew there, the context is that it, it stopped immediately. Like Jonah hit the water and boom, everything was still. That had to be freaky, right? Like if you had any doubt that God was in control of that storm, there was no doubt anymore. This is what obedience does in our life. Obedience brings the favor of God. When we step in obedience, God's favor comes rushing in to our lives. He's just waiting to pour out his grace on us if we will obey. And when the men saw it, it says that the men feared the Lord and they offered sacrifices and they made vows. Sounds like to me that these men came to faith in the Lord. I don't know for sure. We don't know for sure, but like they had some big moves here. And that's how awesome our God's grace is. Is that even when we're screwed up, man, he can use it to bring himself glory and to bring more people to himself and to show the gospel. And God wants to do that and he's willing to do that no matter what the circumstances are. God's grace goes to everyone in every circumstance. And for us to have it, all we have to do is come in humble repentance and obedience. And we won't be able to handle all the grace that God will shower upon us. God will not allow my sin to stop me or anyone else from experiencing his grace. Our God is too big for that. He's too awesome for that. He's too loving and gracious for that. Your sin might be big today, but God can take it. He can take care of that. He can forgive that. He can make it right. If you'll come in repentance, he'll do it every time. And he'll take that and he'll turn it into something so much bigger and so much more awesome and glorious than you and your stuff. And he will be magnified through our repentance before him. Resisting God's grace is painful because he won't leave me sinful. It's painful when we're kicking and screaming. And if we'll just confess, we'll just repent, we can come out on the other side of that and be filled with his grace. So what about you right now? Are you going through a painful season? Are there some things in your life that are trials, that are hard, that you are feeling the weight of? Maybe, not always, but maybe there's an area of unrepentance in your heart. There could be something else. It's not always sin. That's a good place to start. Is there an area, is there something in your life, something this past week, something this past month, something this past year, or maybe even five years, I don't know how long you've been living with this, that you need to seek the Lord fall on your face and confess in humble repentance. 
Maybe there's an area of rebellion or disobedience in your life. Maybe it's not so much a sin per se, but you're running from what the Lord has told you to do. Resisting God's gracious call to repentance is only going to make things worse for you and for everyone around you. So today I want to give us just a moment here to respond in prayer and in song and just cry out before the Lord if there's something in your life, something in your heart that needs to be fixed, that you need that repentance, now is the time. You don't have to leave this place with that still living in your heart, with that weight still on your shoulders. Take it before the Lord. Get it right. Stop the pain. Let God's favor and grace rush into your life this morning. Stand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. Lord, thank you. Thankful, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us to continue to pursue us, to continue to speak to us, continue to allow your Holy Spirit, Lord, to change our heart and change our lives today. Father, we are a broken and rebellious people. So often, Lord, we fail. We fail to obey your word. We fail and we fall into sin. Forgive us. Forgive us for resisting your grace, that gracious call in our lives to repentance. Forgive us for stubbornly persisting in our sin. Lord, right now, right here, Lord, break our hearts. Break our hearts before you, Lord. God, Savior. Bring us to that place of true repentance, Lord. We need your grace in our lives. Lord, we need you today. We pray all these things in Christ's name.